0: Let's open up to the last chapter of the book of Judges. As we finish out this book tonight, this will be the eighth book that we have studied in the last three and a half years at the bridge. Seventh in the Bible, but you throw in the book of Revelation, and we've covered eight. And that excites me. I was going through kind of reorganizing. We have a website that's going to be coming up hopefully within the next couple or three weeks. Hopefully by fall at the latest the, the website'll be running and, and all the teachings that, that we've had over the last three and a half years will be downloadable on MP three. You can just click on it and listen to it and don't have to wait for CDs or anything like that. And uh, and I'm excited about that. I was going back and I was looking at, at all the different teachings, trying to get a numbering system so people can say, you know, I just I want this teaching number or that teaching number. And and it's so amazing to me to think about all that the Lord has shown us and, and where where we've been in the Word and where we're going in the Word. I want to encourage you once again that though we finish out the book of Judges with uh, somewhat of a dis, uh, degree of, of dissension and strife and despair, we head right into the book of Ruth, which is a love story. It's a wonderful book. In fact, Sunday morning we will start into Ruth next Wednesday night. We're going to attempt to do Ruth in one night next Wednesday night. Chapter 1 through 4 all at once in a study. And then the following Sunday, uh, we'll do Ruth some more. So we're just going to spend about a week, all told, Sunday to Sunday, one week in the book of Ruth. Then I'm going on vacation, and when I come back, we'll hit First Samuel and just keep plodding along and, and enjoying what the Lord has for us. By the way, I'm standing back from the stage here, if you if you notice I'm back a little. It's just... For the birds. <laughs> I don't want them whiting out any of my notes. So, well, Judges chapter 21 tonight we come to the end of the book again, and Israel is in the throes of civil war. If you remember the last week, we studied chapter 19 and 20, and it's a brutal, brutal story. The story of a Levite who takes a concubine to himself, a libid. And she goes off and plays the harlot, the Bible tells us. And he chases her down and and brings her back. But on the way back, they stop off in the town of Gibeah in the the territory of Benjamin. And there the men of the city of Gibeah, Benjamites by tribe, pound on the door. And just like the men in the city of Lot back in Abraham's day, they pound on the door and they want the homeowner to send out this Levite so that they can have their way with him. It's an awful picture of the state of the world at that time. Well, the Levite doesn't go out, neither does the man of the house. They just take the man's daughter, they, they take the, uh, the concubine actually, and throw her out. And the men of the city ravage her until she is found on the doorstep dead the next morning. Gang raped, murdered, it's an awful, brutal tale. uh, the, The Levite picks up the concubine, puts her on the donkey, makes the journey on home. When he gets there, takes out his genzu knives and begins to carve up into 12 pieces this concubine and mail her body parts out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they hear of this, they gather and they are so shocked, so outraged. They send a convoy out to Benjamin to say, give up the men of the city of Gibeah. We're going to take them out. And the Benjamites don't. They stand with their brothers. They say, we know they did this heinous thing, but they're our brothers and we will fight with them. And so civil war breaks out in chapter 20. And as Israel goes up against Benjamin, the first time up, they lose 22,000 men in the first battle. They go up a second time, losing 18,000 men. So now 40,000 Israelites are killed by their brothers, the Benjamites. Finally, they go before the Lord. They offer up burnt offerings and, and peace offerings. They, they pray to the Lord. They repent of where they're at in the whole process. And then the Lord goes before them. But, so the Lord gives them Benjamin. They take it one step further. And just for context, let's begin in chapter 20, verse 41. It says, Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded Benjamin, and they pursued them without rest, and trod them down opposite Gibeah toward the east. Thus 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, but they caught 5,000 of them on the highways and overtook them at Gadam, and they killed 2,000 of them. So all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and they remained at the rock of Ramon four months. The men of Israel then turned back, watch this, against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. Wait a minute, I I thought they already struck the army. They did. Now they're going against the civilian population. Now they're going into the cities and the towns of Benjamin and they are murdering everyone in sight. They're setting fire to the cities. It tells us that they struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city and the cattle and all they found, and they also set fire on all the cities which they found. And it's amazing to me that this, this tribe, this people of Israel, it did not take them long to become seriously divided. It didn't take long for civil war to break out. In fact, by the end of Solomon's reign, it's going to happen again as the northern kingdom of Israel divides from the southern kingdom of Judah. North versus south. Sound familiar? It didn't take long in our country's history for that to happen as well. The north to divide from the south. Before that, Benjamin Franklin, back when the country was founded, made that famous statement, you remember it, United we stand, divided we fall. What a lot of students of history don't realize is the primary issue for Abraham Lincoln, when he was president at the time of the Civil War, was not slavery. His primary concern was not the abolition of slavery, it was the preservation of the Union. That's what he was fighting for. Some of you know that Abraham Lincoln himself had slaves. So he wasn't trying to free the slaves as much as to maintain unity. And I wonder what Abe Lincoln would say about the state of the Union today, and the world in which we live, and and the banter that goes about, and and, and how our nation looks. United we stand, divided we fall. I I told Cheryl today what amazes me in this war on terror is I've yet to hear anyone stand up on the news and make a comment that what's happening in our nation, all of the backbiting and dissension and division, is exactly what the terrorists want. We're playing perfectly into their hands. As we play politics and argue and debate and fight in the halls of Congress and on our streets, back and forth and back and forth, al-Qaeda is having a heyday, and the terrorists are enjoying exactly what they set out to do. We live in a divided world. How's the United Nations doing? <laughs> Talk about division. A divided world. But the greatest sort of, source of division in the world, as you probably well know, it's not politics, it's religion. And that's part of the problem. In the war on terror, America's playing politics while the Muslim terrorists are playing religion. For so them, it's a holy war and a holy war is awfully hard to fight when one side doesn't even recognize the type of war that it is some would blame God some would blame God for the state of the world today many people do in fact they say see it's religion that's the problem It's all these people who have faith and beliefs. And without faith and belief, we wouldn't have any problems. John Mayer, a young guitar player, singer, one that I like to listen to his music a lot, he has a song on his most recent album called Belief. And the whole idea is everybody believes in something. It's belief that divides us. If you didn't have belief, it'd all be fine. You go back to John Leonard. Remember he said, imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. No hell below, and imagine just just imagine a world with, with no religion, no faith, no belief, and we'd be fine. These guys, though they don't understand what they're talking about, are onto something, and that is the fact that religion does divide. And people would blame God for that, but if they blame God, they haven't read his word. He says in Proverbs 6, verse 16. Actually it said of the Lord. Proverbs 6.16 That there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Now the Hebrew poetic uh, construction of this verse tells us what God hates the most. As the writer says this, what he's saying is there are six things the Lord hates. The seventh thing in this list is more than hate. There are six things he hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination. In other words, you're going to see six that God hates, but when you get to number 7, he really hates number 7. Here's the list. Proverbs 6:17. He hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And number seven, he absolutely despises one who spreads strife among brothers. If there's anything God hates, it's division. God despises division. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And yet Jesus himself warned that faith would divide. That it would be an inevitable thing. He says this, perhaps you've heard him say this, Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute, he's the prince of peace, isn't he? Wasn't it what the angel sang? Peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. Isn't it about peace? Wasn't that the whole idea? Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father. And a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And I read that verse and and it, it seems contrary. For the nature of the Prince of Peace Who promises to bring peace to us Well Jesus when he says this He's quoting Micah chapter uh, 7 verse 6 When he says he's going to set a daughter against mother And a man's household will be against him he, He directly quotes the prophet Micah In saying that But I want you to hear what Micah says In the very next verse Micah chapter 7 verse 7 Continuing that phrase Micah writes But as for me I will watch expectantly for the Lord I will wait for the God of my salvation, that is Elohim Yesha. My God will hear me. Who is the God of our salvation? He has a name. You know His name. The God of salvation. The God who saves. His name is Yeshua. Jesus. Interesting construction. God of my salvation is Elohim Yesha. Yesha is short for Yeshua. I will wait for the God of my salvation, Yeshua, or Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Jesus promised, and I want you to understand this before we go on, because we're continuing with conflict in the tribes of Israel. Continuing to see division. There is a reason why Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus talked about two different kinds of peace for us to understand and to know. The first kind of peace is for now. The second kind of peace is for then. The first peace is an internal peace. Where Jesus did say in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. My peace. The peace that Jesus had as he walked the shores of Galilee. The peace that Jesus had as he walked that trek down to Jerusalem. The peace that Jesus had as he walked from the fortress of Antonia, the Praetorium, out to Calvary. He had a peace, an internal peace. It wasn't based on what was going on around him. As people were crying out for his blood, it was a peace that was internal. And he promises that for anyone who believes in him. Yeah. No matter what happens in your life, you can have peace, internal peace. But Jesus said, Don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Paul says Philippians 4, seven, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus your hearts and your minds you will be guarded you can have a special and an internal peace even for those days of outward division and turmoil but there's another peace coming because right now, as we well know, Jesus was right. He didn't come to bring peace but a sword. The Christian faith does set a daughter against a mother and a man against the members of his own household. Some of you are very familiar with this. That the more you love Jesus, the more of an outcast you are in your family. That the more you, you try to live for him, the more you see the, dis- the distinction between even some of your own children. Or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers who do not understand your faith. And as a matter of fact, they are offended by your faith because your faith is in the cross. And Jesus said, Paul said, the cross is an offense. And so he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. The very result of having faith in Jesus Christ means that outwardly there's going to be conflict. There's going to be division. There are going to be those who just cannot abide the fact that you believe in this Jesus and there will be division and so Jesus promised us an internal peace for now but he promises he guarantees an external peace one that this world has never seen an external peace for them isaiah 32:17 says the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, in a secure dwelling, and in undisturbed resting places. And he's talking about Israel. And right now Israel is not undisturbed, and there is no peace. And if you look at the land right now, the threat of war continues to rain down from Syria. This summer it's called for. Will it happen? I don't know. But there's an awful lot of talk. There's a lot of chatter that indicates that Israel is expecting Syria to attack before the summer is out. They don't have that external peace, but it is promised to come. Isaiah 55.11 So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Why are you reading that, Rick? Because God's word is that peace will come. And there will be success based on His Word. He's not just speaking empty words. He's speaking the true Word. And in Isaiah 55.12, He goes on and says, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And so there is an external peace, an absolute worldwide peace that is promised to come. For then, for now, we have an internal peace. In the meantime, we know we've got the Spirit of Jesus residing within who brings us peace no matter how rough it gets at work or at home or in the world. No matter how bad things may seem in Baghdad, we have an internal peace in Jesus Christ. Now don't forget that in all of that... Even though there is external division in families, broken relationships and marriages and communities, countries, kingdoms, wars and rumors of wars, though all of that goes on, don't forget that God despises it. Don't think for a moment that he's sitting up there wringing his hands, having fun with it. I had to remind someone else just last night, once again, that our God is not Zeus. Our God does not sit on a throne, on high, toying with us, playing with us. I think I'm going to mess with Cheryl's day today and see how bad I go. (laughs) Because she's upset. (laughs) This is fun. Look at how frustrated Danny is. I'm just playing with him now. Yeah. I gave him a job here and I'm going to pull it away. I gave her a relationship here. I'm going to pull it away. Let's see how they do. That's not our God. That is not how He functions. And yet time and time again, I hear Christians speaking as though that's the way God is. Oh, God's just being hard on me today. No, He's not. Most likely, your decisions are being hard on you today. But if not your decisions, then there's someone else you can blame and His name is Satan and He wants to make life difficult for you. But God is good. Then God has an eternal plan for us, each of us. His intentions toward us are good. And peaceful. He he despises division. Because division always brings heartache. And always brings pain. And that's where we begin in chapter 21 with heartache and pain. The men of Israel, verse 1, had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. This is before the battle. They say, okay, that's it. I mean, the people of Israel could intermarry between tribes. But they said, none of our daughters are going to marry any of the sons of Benjamin. And so the people, verse 2, came to Bethel and they sat there before God until evening and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. This is Israel that just wiped Benjamin out. And now that the dust settles, they're weeping. They're in anguish. The reality of what has happened hits them. Little brother Benjamin is on the brink of extinction. Verse 3 says, they, they said, why? Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel? That one tribe should be missing today in Israel. These twelve tribes were related. They all go back to the twelve sons of Jacob, who God renamed Israel. And Benjamin was the young one. He was the youngest of the twelve tribes. The young son. The one that the older brothers all wanted to protect. Remember the story when the the brothers went down to Egypt and Joseph was there? And Joseph kept Benjamin behind and set the other brothers back. And the other brothers were just terrified because they had to protect little brother. They had to look out for Benjamin. And now the rest of Israel is feeling that sense of loss. They should have protected. They didn't. They wiped out Benjamin. Benjamin. And they're saying, we're, we're a tribe short now. We're not a full, we're not a complete people as we were before. It's hauntingly, by the way, familiar, similar to America's Civil War. Where brothers, like, fought brothers and families fought families. And the outcome of America's Civil War and that bloody battle was that there was not a single family in America that was untouched. By that carnage, regardless of which side a family fell on, everybody was touched by it. And that's where Israel is. And they're, they're following this rage of passion, this incredible slaughter. See, that's what they did. They, first they gathered together. They couldn't believe what Benjamin had allowed. They're angry about it. They're passionate about it. They're saying, none of our daughters are going to marry these guys. Quick, arm yourselves. Go to war. Ah! And it's all crazed passion until it's all over. And the dust settles. And with the exception, at least as far as I understand, as far as I read it, with the exception of the 600 men who are hiding off off in the rocks of Ramon, all the rest of Benjamin is history. Everybody else in that tribe is dead. And so there's a problem. Because in their fury the sons of Israel made a vow... They made a vow not to allow any of their daughters to marry the sons of Benjamin. Then they wiped out the cities of Benjamin and the women of Benjamin so that all that's left is these 600 men and there is no way now for Benjamin to have an inheritance. They can't even marry their daughters in to cover the inheritance because they swore, they made a vow that they would not do it. Which is why again, which we talked about recently, this is why the Bible warns us against senseless vows. We talked about the vow of Jephthah back in Judges chapter 11. How he said, Lord, give me victory on the battlefield. and Whatever it is that walks out of my door, I'll offer it up to you as a sacrifice on the altar. And his daughter, you recall the story, was the one who walked out the door. It reminds me of a vow that Saul made. We're going to talk about this in coming weeks, probably by this fall we'll be to chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, where Saul makes a vow. They're in battle, heated battle against the Philistines, and in the middle of that passion, that fighting, and and, and the, 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 the tension of what's going on, Saul cried out, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, until I have avenged myself upon my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. He's so angry and he wants so badly to take out the Philistines, he says, no one's eating until we take out this enemy. Kind of a stupid thing to say. Because now he's sending his army into battle and saying, we're not going to fund you. (laughs) It's basically what he's doing. Go fight, but don't eat. Well what Saul didn't realize was going to happen and what did happen is his own son Jonathan who didn't get this word grabbed some honey as he's running along the way to eat it to sustain himself. Word gets back to Saul and you know what Saul said? We'll talk about it next month when we get there. But unaware of this whole thing we've got this, this example of making these vows and saying, this, you know, Lord, before you I commit myself to this and then discovering that was a stupid thing to do I say this as a reminder that each of us can make stupid vows in the heat of battle in the heat of emotion we got to remember Paul says Romans 7 verse 18 we have to remember this in me dwells no good thing These are Paul's words. I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So when I'm in the heat of passion, in the heat of battle, that's when my flesh rears up. That's when I say and do stupid things. And that is when it's a poor time to make rash decisions or vows. you walk out that door, don't come back again. If you don't obey me... Then this is going to happen. That's it. I'll never speak to you again. If you do this, I'll never forgive you. Rash promises. Verbal crimes of passion in the heat of battle. And what's interesting to me is, notice who the people blame in verse 3. Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? They blame God. Why, Lord? How can you allow that? Have you ever prayed that? God, how can you let this happen? How can you allow this to go on? God, why am I now... How can you do this to me, Lord? Listen, none of this situation was God's fault. It was not the Lord who said, Burn the cities and wipe out the women. It was not the Lord who, by the way, commanded them to refuse their daughters to Benjamin. That was their decision. The burning of the cities, that was their decision. God gave them the okay to go up against the men in warfare on the battlefield, not to go into the cities and burn them and destroy the people. That's what Israel did in the heat of passion in the battle. Why, O Lord God, has this come about in Israel? And I can almost hear God answering, because you're a bunch of idiots. Because you have made decisions that have landed yourself in this place today. And can I just remind you, I shared this on Sunday, I'll say it again, we have got to learn to stop blaming God when things go bad or go awry in our lives. Stop turning it around on Him. The Bible tells us, Psalm 36, five: Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men who take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. God is good. God is all good. Even when we tongue-in-cheek blame God for mishaps... I think we're undermining this truth of His goodness. We say, ah, the Lord's just messing with me today. No, don't say that. He's not. Well, now the battle's over and the people of Israel, they realize the dust settles and they're in a bad place. Everything got out of control. And now they're drawing back and they're weeping. And now they realize what a horrible thing it is that's truly happened in Israel. Verse 4 going on says, It came about... (coughs) The next day, that the people arose early and built an altar there and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, this is a good thing. At least in their sorrow, they pause and they worship. And I like that picture. They offer burnt offerings. If you remember back in Leviticus chapter 1, burnt offerings are all about dedication to the Lord. You offer up a burnt offering to dedicate yourself. Leviticus chapter 3, they offered up peace offerings and and Leviticus tells us the peace peace offerings were all about fellowship with the Lord. Dedication to and fellowship with the Lord, it's worship. They're acknowledging the Lordship of, of God their Father over their lives. In the same way... The best place to go when you're in mourning, when I'm in mourning, when I'm reeling from division, from problems, from warfare, possibly in my own family or among friends, the best place to go is to worship. To bow down before the Father, to enter into fellowship, to rededicate yourself to Him again and let Him direct your steps. Unfortunately, though the people of Israel do come and worship the Lord, offering their offerings, they do dedicate, they do have fellowship with, but they don't pause To listen to the Lord. They worship, but they don't listen. And a lot of that goes on in our fellowships as well. We'll show up on Sunday. Man, we will worship our hearts out, but we don't listen. It's interesting to me that it normally takes me, when I'm praying, it takes me a long time to get to the point where I can actually listen to God. Are you that way? If you start out, if I start out just trying to listen, I say, okay, Father, I'm just going to listen to you. I find that within minutes, within seconds, I'm doing my list. I'm thinking of all the things that I've got to get done. And I'm ready to to plow ahead. But when I take time and set aside time and begin to just pray and and talk through things with the Lord. Five, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, half an hour goes by. And you get to this place where suddenly you can pause and not speak and your mind's not racing. You're listening. And worship is the door through which we can enter into God's presence and listen to Him. The problem is we'll start to worship. And like Israel, we'll get done worshiping and go, Okay, now we've got to get going. We worship. That was great. Now we've got to move forward. Now we've got to take care of things. Well, they pause to worship, but they don't pause to listen. And immediately they're going to set out with their own plans, which are absolutely ridiculous, as you will see. Verse 5. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath, another great oath, concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. So now it's they're looking around and saying, Who else among the tribes didn't come up with us to fight against Benjamin? Who can we blame? And in verse 6 it says, And the sons of Israel, they were sorry for their brother Benjamin. And they said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give any of our daughters in marriage? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? Behold... No one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, and behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. No one from this particular town showed up. Jabesh-Gilead. They figure this out, and they decide now, because they made an oath against anyone who would not fight with them against Benjamin, now they decide, well, we're going to go fight them. We're just going to keep fighting. Let's just make this a little bit. You know, it's like saying, I've got a cut on my arm, and if I really dig at it, maybe I can get it to go away. (laughs) If I really tear at it, maybe it'll get better. That's what they're doing. Let's divide a little more. Let's mess up a little bit more. Verse 10, they go on and it says, The congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is depravity, gang. This is as bad as it gets. This is the thing you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Here's the answer. We need to save the tribe of Benjamin. We need wives for the 600 men who are still hiding out in the rock of Ramon. So we've got to go get some women. Let's find some virgins from jabesh Gilead, and let's wipe out the rest of the population. There. We'll kill them and we'll take these women over to the Benjamites. Unfortunately, there's only 400 of them. And there are 600 men up there. We've got to come up with 600 wives somehow, and it can't be any of our wives because we made a vow. So I'm glad they're keeping their vow. See how messed up and depraved things can get when people do what's right in their own eyes in a time where Israel had no king? And that continues to be the problem. Verse 13 going on says, Then the whole congregation sent word. And they spoke to the sons of Benjamin, who were at the Rock of Hermon, and they proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women, whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. These are probably a happy group of chicks right here. 400 women. Going to be married now to these 400 guys, and and what a great great ceremony that must have been. (laughs) Tears of joy, I'm sure, were just flowing. Yet they were not enough for them. Verse 15 says, And the people were sorry for Benjamin, because the Lord... The Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. They're still blaming the Lord. Verse 16, Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin, since we killed them all? Verse 17, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel have sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Now granted, it's a nice thought for them to want to continue Benjamin's inheritance. But maybe they should have thought about that before they started burning cities and killing women. They didn't think about that. They just raged ahead. It is good that Benjamin was preserved. For had Benjamin not been preserved, we would not have had the Apostle Paul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. So on the one hand, I say, I'm glad that they provided for an inheritance. But on the other hand, even though that was a good thing, doing a bad thing to make a good thing is never a good thing. And so they go about this the wrong way. The issue here is yet again, man doing what seems right in his own eyes. And I think about, you know, in my life when I charge ahead putting pedal to the metal, without thinking about what's going on, without pausing, after worship to listen. When I jump into the fray, and I haven't taken time to really hear from the Lord, that's every time when I get into trouble. I'm sure the same is for you. It's like the guy who bought a new Mercedes. Perhaps you've heard this story. he got a beautiful new Mercedes and he's driving along. He's got a little hood ornament out there and he's he's really proud of his new car. And especially the hood ornament, you know, he's, he just thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. And he's driving along. And he decides he wants to show off his car. So he pulls over and picks up a hitchhiker. Now this hitchhiker looks a little bit out of it and, and kind of sits down in the car. And he's looking all around, well, it's a really cool car, wow, you know. And the guy's driving along and he's just, yeah, it's my new Mercedes. And he's describing it to him. And the guy looks out on the hood and says, hey, what's that thing out there on the edge of the hood? And I said, well that, that's my viewfinder. You know he's having a little fun with him. You know he's playing with him. That's my viewfinder out there. See that way when I'm driving along, if I want to take somebody out, I just line them up with that thing, and I can just roll right over. And the guy goes, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, watch this." And he sees an elderly gentleman crossing the road. You know, about a half mile up, and so he just punches. He takes off. and They're going faster and faster. And the guy beside him is just white knuckling it. And the guy driving's laughing to himself because he knows, and he's not going to hit this guy. And he's going really fast. At the last second, when he's just about to hit him, he veers left and veers right to avoid him. But he hears a sickening thud and he says well what happened I, I thought I swore to miss the guy and the hitchhiker said well you would have but I opened the door make sure we got him there see when you charge ahead without thinking things invariably fall under the tires Israel is acting without thinking they're stepping out without pausing without listening without waiting waiting for what? waiting for the Lord they are not waiting on the Lord Israel has given us some great example of what it's like not to wait on the Lord now I'm not being just hard on Israel the truth is it's a problem of humanity but we know Psalm 106 verse 13 said they soon forgot his works I mean they weren't they weren't a few days out of Egypt on their travel through the wilderness when the psalmist writes they forgot his works they waited not for his counsel They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. And that to me, that is one of the most descriptive verses in Scripture. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Psalm 106.15 and so often that's what happens I I may worship the Lord but if I'm not waiting on the Lord if I'm not listening to the Lord He'll give me my request He'll allow me to plow forward but there's a leanness in my soul it's not working the way man, God, I was at worship Sunday and and I've made some decisions this week and they're just going all wrong He says, well yeah, I gave you your request but, but with your request if you're not waiting on me there will be leanness in your soul Isaiah writes, those who wait For the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let me give you just a little piece of advice based on the scriptures here. When you don't know what to do, don't. When you don't know what to do, don't do. Don't do anything. Pray about it. And wait. By far the best advice that I can give anyone, and I've actually given it several times in the last couple weeks, specifically pray and wait. Pray and wait. I had a situation I can't tell you about right now, but I was counseling a guy and we are talking through some problems and a situation he's in and it is a tough spot. And honestly, scripturally, any way he turns, there's not a right answer. Any way he turns will result in sin. And he's describing the situation he's gotten himself into and as I'm I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm thinking, I... There's, I have no answer. I can't even point to Scripture for this guy because any advice or counsel I give him, even if it seems right, is un- unbiblical. And as we talked and I listened, I kept saying, what do I tell him? What do I say? How do I respond to this? Pray and wait. And as we got into this conversation, I, I, the, the thought even came, and I know it was the Lord, was very simply this. There's an answer here that you and I don't have. There's an answer that we cannot see, but God can. And so for now, pray and wait until he gives answer for the question at hand. Even if in our lives we cannot see, there is no way out of the situation I am in, pray and wait. Watch him miraculously open the door. Watch God make a way out that we never thought was possible. But we plow ahead. We rush into it. We call up from camp and say, Dad, I hate it here. I want to come home. As my son Hayden did this week. He just called. Not good? Okay, we'll talk about it later. He's having a hard time. We drop him off at Camp Furwood, great Christian camp. Corey and Hannah went there, had a fantastic time two years in a row. We send Hayden off with, you know, all the fanfare, drop him off, and it's all great. See you later, son. And we drive off, and he's playing basketball with the friends, and the very next day, I hate Camp Furwood. I hate it here. (laughs) Yeah, there's Camp Granada. That's some i of the songs Hello mother And so he calls He wants to come home and, and what I told Hayden Was pray and give it a day Just pray about it And give it a day Or two <laughs> Or three and Jim and I met with a, a pastor This last week for a church that has just finished putting up a new building. Because we're looking at land and we're talking about building. And, you know, we're going to get some information and some advice about how it goes. And a couple of things. I, I told Jim, it was somewhat discouraging as we left there. Because the first thing he says is, well, you know, everybody says it takes four years from when you start to when you finish a building. Four years until you can move in. And he said, I didn't believe him, but you know, that was four years ago for us and we just moved into the building. So plan on four years. I'm going, Four years? That's longer than the bridge has even been here for years. And then the other thing he says is that 80% of all pastors will resign within a year after their building being completed. 80%, eight out of ten. Bye bye. See you later, God. And I, I, you know it rattled my cage a bit until within a day or so I started thinking. I really wonder how much time they spend on their knees. And I'm not judging them. I'm not judging this church. But I wonder how much of it was based on plowing ahead. Which is why it was such a problem. Instead of just praying about it. And by the way, if it takes four years for the bridge to get into another building, so be it. That's God's will. That's his, that's his timetable, not mine. If he wants us in another building within a year, we'll be there. Sure. And if he wants us to be in this barn for four more years, praise God, we'll be here. Amen. It's not my issue. My role, my job, your job, we are to pray and wait. Pray and give it a day. And Israel doesn't do that. They're trying to work this all out. They've got a problem ahead. They've got a whole tribe of people. They've got to repopulate a tribe that you know they slaughtered. But now they got to repopulate it and figure out how to do it. And the lunacy of Israel continues in verse 19. They say, Behold. Here's what we'll do. Because we got 400 guys covered. We need 200, 200 more wives. There's a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh. Which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, here's what you do, you 200 guys left over. Go lie in wait in the vineyard, hide out, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. What a great idea. (laughs) Go catch a wife. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. And it says, verse 22, It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, that we shall say, hey, give them to us voluntarily. Now listen to what they say. Because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them, else you would now be guilty. What they're saying is, hey, this is, we figured out a way to get around our vow. If these women are kidnapped, then you didn't give them voluntarily, therefore you are released from the vow that you made not to give a daughter to the men of Benjamin. Isn't that great? And everybody's happy, except for 600 virgins now married to the Benjamites. What a legacy. I wonder with those families how long that pain continued down the family line. Wives and mothers who were bitter because of what was done to them. Watching their entire tribe wiped out. Watching themselves, you know, they're being ripped out of Jabesh Gilead or stolen when they're going to the area outside of Shiloh just for a dance. Unbelievable. By the way, parents, this is a a great reason here to encourage your daughters not to go to dances. (laughs) Sorry, Caitlin, you know, because you never know. Some guy might just jump out of the vineyard and you're gone. But I did think of one thing, and it's interesting, and and I'll I'll say this, and I I don't know how many parents we have of teens here tonight, but um, for those who even listen to this later, it's interesting to me, I think the greatest catch to make is not at the dances outside of Shiloh. But it's inside of Shiloh. If a man wants to make a good catch in a wife, the best place to find her is not at the dances on the outside, but near the Lord on the inside. Amen. If my daughter was here tonight, I would tell her this, and I'm going to go home and tell her. Where is she? She was supposed to be here. Packing. Okay. She's got a thing coming up. Hopefully, she won't call us tomorrow. Well, I hate it here. Anyway. <laughs> it's at Shiloh those women who stayed at Shiloh close to the Lord would be the best catch for a marriage I've shared this before and it embarrasses Cheryl every time so please don't look at her sitting right over here to my left (laughs) but you know what the first thing that attracted okay second thing that attracted me to Cheryl was that she loved Jesus and that was really really high on my list I wanted to make sure first and foremost that I was meeting a woman who loved Jesus Proverbs 31 verse 10 a favorite verse of mine in the Bible an excellent wife who can find no it goes on from there an excellent wife who can find and then he goes on to give this description of an excellent wife My favorite part of the description it comes down to the end and in verse 30 after saying all these different things that describe an excellent wife, it comes down to this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the Lord she shall be praised. That is a woman worth catching. That is one worth going after. Not like those who are coming out to the dance as they jumped out from the vineyard here where they were hiding. Verse 23 Well the sons of Benjamin did so. And they took wives according to their number from those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and they lived in them. So the sons of Israel, they departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. You read this book, and where we land, where we end up, it's just this blatant sin and the horror of, of these things going on right in the heart of the people of Israel right here in the Bible. And I've told you before praise God this book tells it like it was and tells it like it is. It gives us the picture of depravity the picture of sin it shows us what happened when verse 25 tells us in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges, if you go back and reread chapter one, you discover, and I won't do it right now, but you discover this book opened up with an awful lot of hope. It was exciting. It was a time at the end of Joshua's life where they had conquered the land. It was theirs for the taking. And Joshua says, Now go take your inheritance. Build your houses. Move into the houses that are already there for you. Take over the vineyards that are already growing that the Lord provided to you. It's a time of great hope. And yet this book that begins with hope ends in despair. This book it begins with God as King leading the people through his valiant warrior Joshua. It ends with no king at all. It begins with conquest and ends in chaos. And it's proof positive as to what we've been talking about when the world becomes morally relative and authoritatively empty. In a world where there is no absolute truth, truth is what you make it, and a world where there truly is no king, But each individual person. I praise God that in this world we have at least two absolutes. We have the absolute of the word of scripture. We have the absolute truth that is set before us that we can study and know and understand and seek and hear the will of God. The absolute truth of scripture. And Jesus said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, it's also quoted in Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is all about Jesus. We have the absolute word of Scripture and we have the absolute authority of Jesus Christ who is the word. We have our King. We have our truth. And it's not just our truth as opposed to any other truth out there. We have the King. We have the truth. And so Isaiah 55 tells us, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That is our hope. Praise God. That peace is coming. Let's all stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand as a fellowship this this evening. We stand on your truth. We stand on the authority of the word in the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you that in a world that is so divided and so unstable that we have the foundation. The Lord, as Paul said, no man can build on any other foundation. There's no other foundation which has been laid but Jesus Christ. And this is the foundation on which we build with the pillars of truth found in your word. Led by your precious Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. And we pray you would continue to guide us in the truth and strengthen our faith, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray tonight. Amen.